Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So uh, last week, we talked about how we're going to do a short detour. And we're going to pause from our normal practice of preaching from the lectionary and to talk about the Ten Commandments. And a text like this morning uh, tests the resolve of, uh, of not preaching from the lectionary. The God that we are dealing with this morning, the God that we encounter in the scriptures, the God that we sing and pray to, the God that we encounter in bread and wine. This is not God as a remote idea. This is not some impersonal moral force. We are dealing with a God who is active and present in the middle of our story, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Esther and Hannah, the God who rescued Israel from Egypt, the God who is father, creator, breath giver, the God who is the source of every speck of life and goodness and beauty that exists. This is a God who is rescuer and lover, a God who we'll see is a fiery, impassioned God. These 10 words are about the forming of a community of God's people. The Ten Commandments are not first given as rules for individual morality. They certainly lead us into that. But they are first about a way of being God's people in the world. The first five of these words direct our attention to this alive God. The next five turn our attention toward one another. First, we order our life under God, and we have to do that first because otherwise everything else will be distorted if we don't get that aligned. So first we order our life under God, and then next we begin to order our life with each other. God first. That's essential. No other wisdom in the Bible makes sense removed from the God who is the source of that wisdom. Whenever we take the Bible as abstracted ideas, proverbial truths that we can rip out and sort of use however we like, in whatever context we like, it will never work. It's kind of like when you're on the plane and they're the stewardess or steward is giving you all the instructions, the ones that most of us are tuning out of. And what do they always say? If the, if the water or the air thing ever drops out, make sure you put it on yourself first before you start to help your kids. It's always love. So I'm like, I could just imagine that happening and like watching them like suffocating as I'm just sort of getting everything on just right. They said to wait. <laughs> if we don't deal with God first, everything else will absolutely fall apart. Eugene Peterson talks about the Ten Commandments as ten conditions. Ten conditions that are necessary for a community to flourish. And the first five of those conditions are God conditions. 
If we are going to live in community, Peterson writes, dealing with the God whom we cannot see takes priority over dealing with the men and women we can see. We must attend to God first so that we don't, in our hurry to get on with the really practical things that are on our minds, brush past the invisible, fail to attend to the immense gravity of what is involved, reduce God to mere background. So that we don't do those things, we are slowed down to consider. There are reasons here that you may not have thought of. There are consequences here that you might not be aware of. There is a context involved that sets this command in a world far larger than what you see around you right now. And that larger word, that larger context is God. And so we hear the, tenth, the second of the ten words today when God says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. This is the words as it's given to us in Exodus. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's two of the ten words or commandments that receive a lot more attention than all the others, and one of them is this one. All of the words, the commandments, are really short, and this one is really long. All throughout the Old Testament, what you hear over and over and over again is this deep concern, this deep tragedy, this deep problem that Israel encountered over and over again, which is the penchant to idolatry. An idol is a replacement for God. An idol is a concrete way that we break the first commandment, that we should have no other gods before God. In ancient cultures, there was a plethora of gods, statues or poles or carved art representing a sea creature, maybe a carved well, a beast, perhaps an eagle or a lion, some mythical creature. There was something actually quite right about this human impulse. Humanity has always instinctively felt deep in our soul the wooing outside of ourselves the wooing toward divine love. The problem, though, is that we've also so often resisted the one who is actually doing the wooing, the one who is actually reaching out to us. And so what we do is, in the words of Exodus, we make for ourselves. Whenever we encounter that alluring, mysterious wooing, the invitation is for us to say yes, to fall on our knees, to open our arms wide with joy and relief, 
to find ourselves in the true embrace. We could spend a lot of time perhaps thinking about why, but the fact is that too rarely do we say yes. Too often, just like Israel, we make for ourselves. We do not trust that the one wooing us is the one who is the source of joy and satisfaction and delight. The one who is our deepest longing. Maybe because we're afraid, because we find it so difficult to trust, we begin making for ourselves our own gods. Idols that we make are idols that we get to define. They're somehow within our control. Sometimes our idols are things. Our carved well may be a house or some magic numbers on the pay stub, some sign of professional accomplishment or acclaim. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's that idyllic picture of family that we've created and held out. But with all our sophistication, perhaps the idols that we make for ourselves are more ideas. Maybe it's our political philosophy, our system of morality, the airtight categories we've created that help us feel self-justified and the pedestal from which we judge others. Perhaps it's our idea about ourselves. Maybe it's the stories that we tell ourselves, the lies that we believe, the ideas that we have convinced ourselves will protect us from getting hurt. Perhaps our idol is the way others think about us, and we spend massive amounts of energy trying to prop up an image for someone else. Maybe our idols are the ways that we cling to our cynicism, or we cling to our despair, or we cling to our clever rationality. God's great concern for Israel, the thing that caused God more anguish, the thing that caused Israel more heartache than anything else, was idols. It is the human penchant learned from our forebears Adam and Eve to attempt to create life on our own terms, by our own rules, with our own version of gods, in ways that make us no longer dependent on the one who is the true lover of our soul. It's what we as humans have done every waking hour, and it is an absolute lie. It's a great sham, but it's a sham that we have slavishly committed ourselves to, no matter how destructive, no matter how painful, no matter how foolish. When you deal with the idols of our age, you think of something like white supremacy. The first evil of white supremacy is not just how it degrades other humans, as true as that is. The first evil of white supremacy is that it is an idol. It's sin. 
It is lifting up our own view and vision of ourselves above the God who created us. It is a refusal to bend toward the God who tells us what is true about ourselves and our life. There's all kinds of secular virtues that can become idols, things like tolerance and freedom, wonderful ideas, but when they're divorced from the God who authors them, they get distorted. So the question a text like this asks of us, the question that God, in one way or another, is always asking us is, what idols are you tempted to make for yourself? In your story, who or what is God's rival? We all have idols peculiar to us, but perhaps this language of idols doesn't go anywhere with you. So God takes us further. God says, you shall not bow down to these idols or worship them. To worship is to give our loyalty, our obedience, our fidelity. Who are you obeying? Who owns your loyalty? What owns your loyalty? I absolutely promise you it's someone or something. Like Bob Dylan said, everybody serves somebody. Who do you bow to? Whose words or opinions bring you low? Who or what do you defer to? I think what's really troubling about this text is that this was a spiritual act they were doing. They were worshiping. The problem is they were worshiping the wrong one. It was a destructive kind of worship. The issue for us is not between worship or no worship. That is not the issue. The issue is between worshiping the God who is life to us or the many gods who will prove to be death to us. Who our God is matters. Just any spiritual God won't do. It's why the most redemptive, healing, necessary thing that we can do as a church is to return again week after week to this simple act, worship. Bowing to the true God and rejecting all idols. And it's why it's all the more destructive, all the more horrifying when it's the church who creates the idols. It could be our brand of theology. It could be the cult of a personality. It could be the false ways that we try to worship America. Each one of them an idol. So Israel, in the second word from God that was going to form them as a new community, needed, absolutely needed, to be called 
to fidelity to their God. God knew that unless they bowed and worshipped to the one true God who would give them life and set them free, they would simply end up surrendering to another Pharaoh. They would just end up being enslaved in another Egypt. In my experience, some of the most enslaved bound people are the very ones who are convinced that they're living free in their own way. Worship is fundamentally about our heart. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg says, the theater of betrayal is in the heart. If we want to know who or what we worship, here's the penetrating question that we ask ourselves. To whom or to what have we handed over our heart? Where have we given our desire? Where have we fixed our longing? Who or what is the object of our hope? And this is why God says that he is a jealous God. Maybe that word makes us uncomfortable. Jealousy defined as the jealousy that you and I have it should probably make us uncomfortable. But what other response is appropriate when we're dealing with the heart? What other response is appropriate when we're dealing with evils that if they are left unchecked will eat away like a cancer and destroy our soul? If Miska were to come home to me this afternoon and say, you know what, when I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I'm actually interested in another guy. My response would not be, yeah, well, okay, whatever makes you happy. I'd go bonkers. I'd lose my mind. It wouldn't work, but I'd probably try to lock all the doors. And that's why God says that this, this um, evil effect of giving our heart over to things that are lies and that are false, it's visited on to three and four generations. I think what God is saying is, is that the ramifications for these places of destruction, it has reverberating impact. It is a deep wound. It is not easily healed. But the love of God is more powerful than even that, because while that's visited to three or four generations, the love of God is visited to a thousand generations. I like the way Will Willimon said, he said, it's not that we will be punished for our sin, but rather our sin itself is punishment, in that it is painful not to be who we were created to be. False gods can be so demanding. The jealousy of God reveals how real the love of God is. Will you say yes to this love?
Will you discard all rivals? Will you give your heart, your love? It's what we mean by your worship to the God who loves you. The moment that this penetrates us is the moment when we recognize that this is not about a moral code. This is about a deep matter of identity and life or death. If God, God's self, is the reality of everything that is good and beautiful and free and truly human, and if everything that arrays itself against that God is destruction and lie and a cancer that will destroy our soul, then to have no other gods before this one God, to not make for ourselves any idol that is a rival to this God, is to say yes to life. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.